Father, we come now just humbly asking that you would speak to us by your Spirit to illuminate Christ more clearly to us, our hope and our life. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we, we're continuing uh, through the Galatians, uh, the letter to the Galatians, which we're going to be going through up until um, Christmas. The letter to the Galatians is all about exclusive news. That's what the letter to the Galatians is all about, some exclusive news. And there once was a time when exclusive news meant that what you were getting was critical information. Uh, and it was exclusive because no one else had this kind of news. So um, I'm assuming most of us were, were probably not even uh, born yet, but there, most people can remember the Watergate scandal uh, many, many years ago in the US where the exclusive news came out that there was corruption in the White House or when the first news station reported on 9-11 and that was exclusive news. But now, in this age of fake news and overwhelming media saturation, uh, saturation, there is very little exclusive news that actually has critical information. So I, I researched this a little bit through the week and I googled exclusive news and you know what came up? The first, the first exclusive news that came up was that Julia Roberts is renting a Sydney mansion. And that was exclusive news that was critical information. And it wasn't much better following on from that. And that's kind of the news that we get now. It's more people's opinions or clickbait titles that are there to captivate our attention, but there's really no substance to it. But the news that is central to the letter to the Galatians is exclusive news. It is not someone's opinion, nor is it clickbait. It is genuine factual news concerning all of human history, and it is entirely exclusive. So no one else has news like this. Now, what is the news? The news is, of course, the gospel. And the word gospel means good news. So the word gospel comes from the word evangelion in Greek, which is where we get words like evangelical or evangelist. And an evangelist, for example, uh, in the first century was someone who proclaimed good news. So in a similar way to what media stations do now, proclaiming good news, an evangelist in the first century was someone who, when the country or the nation would go off to war and they would win and the king would usually go off with them, and then that nation with the king would return into the gates and the evangelists would go before that nation and they would say, good news, we have won, the king is returning. That's what an evangelist would do. They would pronounce good news. Now, in the context of the Christian message, the good news of the gospel is that God has made a way for sinful human beings to be right with their creator. That is the gospel. The good news is that there is now a way for sinful human beings to be forgiven of their sin by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and then be restored and made right with God. 
So the substance of the news is that God has sent his son, Jesus, to live the life that we never could, to die the death that we deserved and to be raised to life from the dead so that we could be raised to newness of life in Christ. And this is the good news. And here's the the critical piece of information today. The critical piece of information in the letter to the Galatians, the most significant thing about the gospel that we see here is that it is a gift. The gospel is a gift. So if you look at Galatians 1 in your Bibles from verse 6, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. The root word for grace means gift. So grace means gift. It is something that we do not deserve. And this is why it is grace, because we do not deserve it. If we deserve the gift, it would not be grace. It would be something we are entitled to. So most of you are probably working. And when you get your fortnightly pay, you probably don't look at your account and say, oh, a gift from my employer. What a, what a generous people I work for. Another gift every fortnight that comes at the same time. You would not say that because you're entitled to that. You'd probably more begrudgingly say, I should be getting more than that. So a gift is something that we do not deserve and the gospel is a gift from God to a people who do not deserve it and this is primarily why the gospel is exclusive to every other religion and worldview because all other religions and worldviews have some form of assent to God whether through moral living or um, enlightenment there is some assent to God whether it is Hinduism and the concept of karma where your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds and then you're reincarnated into um, a better life until eventually the goal of Hinduism is to reach moksha, uh, which is the idea of escaping the never-ending cycle of reincarnation. Or in Islam, you uh, must abide by the five pillars of Islam and live a moral life. And even then, you cannot be certain that you have peace with God. It's kind of up to Allah, which is just the the Islamic word for God. Whereas the gospel of Jesus Christ, see, there is no other news in all the world that says that sinful human beings can be forgiven and restored and have peace with God purely as a result of the gift of the creator of everything through nothing that we have done. This is an exclusive piece of news comparable to nothing else. This is the idea that Paul is getting at here in Galatians, just in these powerful uh, four verses here from six to nine. And this is what we're going to look at today. Three particular aspects of the gospel's exclusivity. Uh, What we will look at is firstly, that the gospel is exclusive news. Secondly, that the gospel requires exclusive obedience. And thirdly, that the gospel's exclusivity makes it the most inclusive. So firstly, the gospel is exclusive news. What I mean by that is that the gospel excludes all other forms of news which attempt to give factual news on how people are right with God. The gospel of Jesus Christ excludes all other pieces of news that would attempt to explain how people are right with God. The good news of Jesus uh, excludes those other views. And we see this in verse 6, where Paul, after he says, I am astonished that you are so 
uh, quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, verse 7, not that there is another one. So there's no other gospel, there's no other piece of news like this news. If you turn to a false gospel, you are turning to a false gospel, a lie, a fake bit of news. This is Paul 2,000 years ago. Who would have thought fake news was there? That's what Paul is saying. If you turn to some other good news, it's fake news. He says, this is so exclusive and so unalterable in verse 8 that even if an angel preaches a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So think about this. Even if the most spectacular thing, and I know we like to picture angels as like fluffy creatures with Uh, lovely wings they're very pleasant to be around but really if you kind of look at the bible most of the time an angel shows up people are just terrified they're very fearsome uh, creatures and so imagine that there's just this angel uh, came down and you could like literally put your hand through the angel and then they started telling you news about how you are right with god and it was different to the gospel we have received in the word of god then paul is saying Kick that celestial being out of here. Uh, They are accursed. And even if I preach a gospel contrary to this, let me be accursed. The word is anathema, which is the, the final curse of God. Someone being damned. So the news is so completely exclusive to all other types of news which would attempt to explain how people can be right with the creator of everything and a common objection to this kind of exclusivity is that it is totally arrogant to claim that you christians hold exclusive truth to how all of humanity can be right with god and this stems from a bit of a postmodernist way of thinking which is kind of the idea there is no absolute truth. So there's no one true truth. There's no meta-narrative. And so sometimes you get objections like, well, all religions just lead to the same path. So many people would say there is no exclusive religion, but all religions have some truth in them. And together, you know, they form a helpful way of life. This idea is often told with the parable of the blind men and the elephant. If you've ever heard this parable before, it's this ancient story, thousands of years old, um, that became very popular when postmodernism kind of became very popular. And it's this story of where there's several blind men in a room and there is an elephant and the blind men are like touching the elephant and one touches the side of the elephant and says, oh, the elephant is uh, smooth and, and firm like a wall. And then that, an, another blind man touches the trunk and says, oh, no, it's, it's long and round like a snake. And then the other uh, man touches the ear and says something different. You get the picture. They're all saying something different. And then the, the story is told from the point of view of the king. And the king looks upon these sort of poor blind men and says, ah, you're all partially right and partially wrong. See, this is an elephant and you're actually touching all different parts of it. So together, your truths form a truth. And it's sort of um, this, this idea that, it, that says that there is no exclusive truth because everyone's reaching for something different, but it all forms one thing. And The big problem to that parable is that it is told from the position of someone who claims to have exclusive truth. 
the king is saying that I have exclusive truth. Oh, I can see. So the story that says that there is no exclusive truth is claiming the very thing that it's saying there is nothing of, that there is exclusive truth. And this is why postmodernism is just a self-defeating argument, because to say that there is no truth is, of course, a truth statement. And so if there's no truth, then why should we believe the truth that you're saying? And it just kind of collapses in on itself. And so the idea that all religions lead to the same path is just self-defeating. Another common objection to an exclusive gospel is the saying, Well, it just really matters whether they're a good person. This has certainly come from many liberal churches that sort of would say that it just really matters that you're a good person. This is a very appealing idea to um, particularly people who have known people who may not have claimed to be a Christian, but they were nice people and you want to have the idea that they are in heaven. And so... um, Basically, you say, well, if you're a good person, then that's good enough for God. And there are two major problems with this. The first is that God is the judge of who is good. And God has declared that no one is good, but all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if someone other than God wants to be the judge of who is good, then how can we be sure if what they are saying is good is actually good? I mean, Hitler thought it was good to create a pure race and do one of the most horrible things in human history. And he thought that was a good thing to do. Subjective reasoning is never going to satisfy. So we simply can't put ourselves in the position of God and judge who is good or not. The second issue with saying that uh, it just matters if you're a good person is, particularly if this is coming from a church, it really just undercuts the gospel. It undercuts the gospel because it suggests that there are people who don't actually need Christ to be right with God. It suggests that there are some people who can actually be good in and of themselves. But the good news is the good news because there is bad news. And the bad news is that no one is good, that we are all stuck. We're all plagued by this thing called sin and no one can please God. So if you allow for people to be saved simply because they are good people, then sin isn't a problem anymore. And if if sin isn't a problem anymore, then what are we doing here worshipping Christ? We could just be good in and of ourselves. The problem with that is that this becomes very bad news for people who are self-aware enough to realise that they are not actually good all the time. Like me. So to suggest that people can be right before God without the sole intervention of Jesus Christ is to distort the gospel of grace because the gospel is good news because it is good news for everyone, whether you are bad or good. The gospel is for all people. And so to say that some people can go to heaven or be right with God just because they are good people actually distorts the gospel of grace since it suggests that there is some form of entitlement to being right with God. And this is so serious because since the gospel is exclusive truth, to distort it in any way would be to turn people to a lie, which is a serious offense. Paul is so unbelievably astonished and angry that this has happened because it's 
as if what's happening here in Galatians, these false teachers are turning them not towards some different path that maybe they'll kind of work it out in the end. Just, it's just a detour. He's saying, no, they're turning them to something that is absolutely false and damaging eternally. The false teachers are turning them away from the only cure for eternal destruction. So this is very, very serious. Imagine if you had a relative, someone you deeply loved who was an alcoholic and the alcohol was slowly destroying them. They were basically a shell of who they once were. And they, by some miracle, had an experience that radically changed them and they instantly decided to quit alcohol, to uh, live healthy, to um, start actually exercising. And all of a sudden, they are starting to regain energy and health and their kidneys are are functioning better again. Uh, And then imagine someone came along and said, Hey, you know, it was never the alcohol that was damaging you. Alcohol's fine. Drink as much as you want. It was never that. And they distorted their view of reality and they went immediately back to the very thing that was killing them. Imagine how you would feel. There would be a righteous anger about you for someone to distort the truth like that. See, this idea of distortion that we see here in verse 7 isn't just a slight change of direction. The word here uh, for where Paul says, who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of grace, it actually means to reverse. Actually means to reverse the gospel, to completely change its direction. So the Galatians, what was happening here for the people was that they were following Christ, but they also wanted to add the ceremonial laws. So they wanted to add the the Mosaic covenant, things like circumcision, things like uh, purifying themselves before eating, things like separating from uh, Gentile people or from Jews. And so there was this addition to the gospel. So it was like Jesus plus the Mosaic law. But this reversed the gospel. This is what Paul is saying. This reverses the gospel because if you think you bring anything to the table, anything to the table when it comes to God's salvation, whether it's because you're a nice person or you do charity work, then you're reversing the gospel because the gospel is the grace of God, which is a gift. We're not entitled to it in any way. So the gospel is exclusive, which means it excludes all attempts to alter this gospel in any way. To alter it is to reverse it. It comes as a gift to be received, not as an entitlement that we can then shape and mold as we choose. And just as a side note for this, a reminder for us that Paul is writing to Christians. This is for us. It's not as if those who have been in church always understand the gospel. There are many who can be in church their whole lives and not understand the gospel. And Paul is writing to us to remind us the exclusivity of the gospel, the core of these truths. The second aspect of the exclusivity of the gospel is that the gospel demands exclusive obedience. So to respond to the gift of God's grace in any other way than exclusive obedience is to desert the gospel, which is what Paul is saying here. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. 
This word for deserted here is a word used to describe not simply deserting someone, but it actually is switching allegiance. So it's used for like soldiers back in the Greco-Roman era who would either desert the army or particularly politicians who would not only desert their party, but they would then switch to the other party, like a liberal politician going to uh, labor just in, in a week. So it's a much stronger idea than deserting To stray from the gospel is not simply to take another path toward happiness. It is actually to say my allegiance is not with the God of heaven and earth. My allegiance is not with God. See, we can't simply say that people just need to hear the gospel, confess Christ, and then it is sealed regardless of how they live. If that were the case, then... Paul would have no issue with these Galatians because as we read last week in Acts 13 to 15, we see that they, they rejoice and they come to Christ. And if, if, if that was all it took, then Paul would have no issue with them. You know, maybe the Galatians even raised their hand at an altar call, went down, did a spontaneous baptism or something like that. There was something that clearly happened, but their life afterwards did not reflect the reality of what they had professed early on. So there is obviously a responsibility to the Christian life which comes after the gift of the gospel. Now, this is so crucial. Uh, The genuineness of the profession of trusting in Christ, which is totally based upon the mercy of God. You're justified by God's gift of grace where the righteousness of Christ is given to you as you turn to Jesus. And the genuineness of that will be seen in a life that is transformed. It's never that we have to live this life of obedience in order to get right standing with God. It always flows out of that. Tim Keller, who was a pastor in New York, gives a great example of this, of how grace and obedience relate when he talks of a woman in his congregation who had grown up in church in the south of America and uh, who then moved to New York and went to Tim Keller's church and he was actually preaching through Galatians and uh, she all of a sudden came across justification by faith alone. And it radically transformed her life when she understood that salvation comes as a gift of God. And as this woman reflected on why it took so long for her living in, growing up in church to then understand this, uh, she said something really profound. She said, I used to think we were saved because we were good people. I think she obviously trusted, she obviously would have said she trusted in Jesus, but the idea was that it's really because you're a good person. You know, God makes you, God wants you to live a good life, so you live a life of morality, and that's what saves you. She said, that's how I used to think. And I guess when I thought that way, I I thought that if we were saved by works, then there's a limit to what God can ask of you. Whereas if we're saved by grace alone, there's no limit to what he could ask of me and my obedience would have to be unconditional. Do you see what she's saying? It's something very profound. She's saying that I actually realized that if I thought that salvation was a result of works, then there is a limit to what God can ask of me. It's kind of like being a taxpayer. Like we pay taxes. We probably pay our 20%, give or take a bit. And uh, 
we're okay, well, most of us hopefully are generally okay with paying those taxes. But if the government came in and said, no, I want more, we would immediately say, no, I worked for that. I'm entitled to that. There's a limit to what you can ask of me. I deserve this. Whereas imagine if you didn't work, you had no money, you were financially destitute, in ruin, and all of a sudden someone out of their sheer mercy came and gifted you a whole bunch of money to restore you. They took you in. They brought you back to the right standing you had before. You would have no sense of entitlement if they asked you of anything. Out of love and appreciation, you would feel as though you owe them everything. And this is what this woman is saying. She's saying that, I guess I always thought that if I brought something to the table, there was a limit to what God could ask of me. I can give him my few hours on a Sunday and a few other things here and there, but there's a limit because really I've brought something to the table. But if it's totally grace alone, then he can demand everything from me. He owns me. See, if there is even a tiny understanding within us that we bring something to the table when it comes to salvation, like maybe you are a, a good person. You're the person who in school you looked out for the loner, you, you cared for them, and, and God is really pleased with that. So that's a little bit of why you are saved. But if that's the case, then we have not understood grace. And see, the issue with understanding this idea of grace or the danger is that most people, when they hear about the idea of being saved as a complete gift from God, immediately think, great, I can do whatever I want. I can live however I want and God will forgive me. But that, of course, is a complete misunderstanding of grace. That idea shows that you've never understood grace. For someone to understand grace, it is as if this, it's like this woman here from Keller's church who said, God can demand everything from me now. He owns me. Grace is grace because we bring nothing to the table. And what does God require of you in response to this? Complete obedience. But here's the thing we can never mix up. As I said, obedience is never the requirement of salvation. Obedience is the fruit of a heart that has been met with the grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. So, for example, someone might ask, if I want to be a follower of Jesus, do I have to forgive my brother or sister that did that horrible thing to me? Or do I have to forgive that relative? Or to be a follower of Jesus, do I have to stop sleeping around? And make no mistake, Forgiveness and sexual purity are most definitely requirements for the Christian life, requirements for sanctification, but they are not requirements for salvation. Because if that were the case, then it would suggest that the only people who are worthy of salvation are those who are already sexually pure or who already have forgiving hearts. And that's not me. That's not anyone. The requirement for salvation is not moral change or broken hearts. Um, sorry, it's not moral change. It is actually broken hearts, broken and contrite hearts that realize that they cannot change, that realize that it is impossible to change apart from receiving this gift. And if you have received this, then 
you know that you have been bought with such a price. I mean, nothing less than the perfect blood of the Son of God. You've been bought with such a price as that. And so a heart that has been met with that just cries out to serve God. But here's where obedience sometimes has unhelpful connotations. There are certain things that someone might see um, with a bit of reluctance. And so they use the word obedience. Obedience kind of usually has the idea, like imagine if I said to you, hey, can you get up at 4 a.m. and drive an hour to the airport to pick up my friend and then come back? And, you know, if you liked me enough, you might do that. But you would kind of, that's where we would use obedient maybe. The pastor has made a request of me. I'll be obedient to it. It's usually conveying some idea of reluctance. But I mentioned earlier, most of you heard the story of, of Cleo Smith, the young four-year-old in, in WA, and they found her at like 1 a.m. And uh, I'm sure the police then would have contacted her parents and told her parents, hey, we've found your daughter after 18 days missing. And do you think for one second that her mum would have then responded and thought in her heart, I guess I better be obedient and get up out of bed at 2 a.m. and go to my daughter? No way. It'd be ridiculous. She'd probably punch you in the face if you suggested that she uh, had some form of obedience to that. It would just be a natural thing. It would be a natural overflow because such is the love for that person that she would naturally do that. See, the thing about understanding the gospel as a gift from God by the blood of his son is that it changes your desires so that things which may have previously felt like a begrudging task now feel like a joyful privilege. The gift of God's forgiveness and acceptance into his family transform your heart. They empower you to desire obedience to him. The gospel demands exclusive obedience, but obedience is hardly begrudging when it is directed toward our Savior who loved us and who gave himself for us. Obedience to him is never begrudging. It is more like I can't wait to follow this Savior who would die for me in my place. When Jesus is our treasure, obedience is a pleasure. Finally, the last and very brief aspect of the exclusivity of the gospel is that the exclusivity of the gospel makes it the most inclusive news. The gospel is exclusive and any attempt to water down the gospel and make it more inclusive is actually to reverse the gospel. You actually reverse the gospel if you try and make it more inclusive. We've seen how the Galatians reversed the gospel by adding to the gospel since the gospel is something received by faith rather than earned through merit. The moment merit comes in, the gospel is reversed. So whether it is merit by saying, well, if you're good enough, you know, like that person was a good person. I'm sure they're in heaven. They were a good person. If that is the case, then we have added to the gospel and therefore we are reversing it because we've done something to receive it. The gospel is exclusive in that it is the only way to be free from the condemnation that comes as a result of disobedience to God 
And that only comes through the sacrifice of Christ in our place. And so this excludes all other ways of life. But this, this is precisely what makes the gospel the most inclusive. This is the wonderful thing. The gospel is the great leveler because it says that everyone can do nothing to be right with God. Everyone can do nothing to be right with God. Regardless of your academic prowess or your moral virtue, the gospel says that it doesn't matter how good or how bad you are. And this means that no single person in this world can say that they either have a superior ability to be close to God. There's no, cult, there's no sort of spiritual gurus or no one can say that anyone is so far beyond saving. And this is something we actually see the opposite of in our secular society, which is very religious about not being religious, if you haven't noticed. In our secular society, there is a level of effort or morality which people must abide by in order to be saved in our society, whether you're going to use the term woke or whatever it is. In order to be in the in crowd, there's sort of this level of virtue that you have to have, like you have to use the right pronouns. You have to support the correct side of politics. You have to be outraged by injustice because silence is murder. And you have to kind of have this effort to be saved. And if you do not abide by this and you make one slip, particularly if you are in the spotlight, then you are cancelled. And it does not matter what you did, all of the good that's cancelled. You are anathema. You are cursed. But see, the exclusive gospel says that no one is beyond the forgiveness of God. Since the blood of Christ is totally able to cleanse us, no one, no matter what you have done, no matter how bad you are in the eyes of culture, no one is beyond the grace of God because the blood of Christ is so pure to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we don't receive this. By ascending to God, we receive this because God has condescended to us in Jesus Christ to gift us with the gospel to say, hey, I will die in your place so that you might come into my family. So the exclusive gospel, which can never be altered in any way, becomes the most inclusive because it levels the platform completely and says that no one can do anything to be right with God. The gospel offers forgiveness to anyone who would simply trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Anyone who would trust in Christ. Anyone who would recognize that they are broken and sinful and in weakness, they would hear the call of God to turn to Jesus. Uh, as I said earlier, this is a book written to Christians. So you may uh, be familiar with the gospel, but it may be an over-familiarity. It may be uh, that actually you might say that you're more in the position of someone like that woman who thought that there is something that I bring to the table. And maybe you've not come to the point yet where you realize that you bring nothing to the table. But the gospel is the grace of God, which means it is a gift to be received, not something we bring any merit to. And if we bring merit to it, then we reverse it. And so today might be a day where you Make a conscious choice 
to realign yourself with the true exclusive gospel of Christ. 